And now Ken is going to be delivering our message this morning. Ken? All right. I got, uh, man, Susan's song with uh, Hope got got my happy feelings going, and uh, not to mention Emily's dancing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and I've got a new, like, picture thing where the digital pictures, and I put it up, like, right over there. And my kids are looking at me right now, so I'm, I really got the happy feelings happening. So let's just stay with this for a while. Um, I, have, I have a friend, uh, pastor friend, David Borger German. He's the pastor of uh, one of the pastors of the Sanctuary Community Church in Iowa City. And David likes to talk about faith as a feeling. This is a super helpful perspective, especially if you remember the old mantra, put your faith in the facts and the feelings will follow. I, th I think I once heard someone say that we should curb our feelings like you curb a dog. But, hmm, that's someone who's not really got a very good relationship with their feelings, I don't think. Um, it's This idea is like uh, faith is some purely rational decision-based function divorced from feelings. Um, we, we now know that uh, whatever enters the brain through the senses goes first through the feeling part of the brain before it enters the thinking part. I think that's the basis of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that means that virtually every thought or certainly train of thought that we have um, gets sparked, begins with a feeling and is shaded by that feeling and in a sense kind of triggers what the thinking is, like the feeling comes first. So a better translation for the word faith in, in lots of uh, versions uh, of scripture is trust. And trust, as we know by experience, is very much connected to feelings. All to say, our feelings around the resurrection of Jesus really do matter and are worth paying attention to. So, you know, we kind of have to remember, it really helps me to remember that um, before there were any creeds, before there were any dogmatic statements about the resurrection that defined institutional belonging uh, or generated controversies, um, the things that like constitute heresy, what can you, what can't you believe about the resurrection and still be orthodox and all that like fear-driven approach to religion. Before all that, we have about a dozen stories of Jesus appearing to his disciples after his death and before his ascension, which in turn took place about 10 days before the spirit release on Pentecost. So there was this period where there were these mysterious appearances of Jesus. Um, it wasn't like he was a ghost, um, um, but he was physically seemingly there. And people could interact with him, and then it would kind of disappear. So it was this uh, fascinating period. These after-death experiences, um, appearance stories, convey very powerful feelings, or else they would just have been forgotten. So the, the feelings first, faith follows, is, is closer if we have to get a sequence to it. So in these accounts, the, the reader or the listener uh, enters kind of an emotion cloud with four common elements on the part of the people who are um, Jesus is appearing to. Um, one element is confusion, uh, often in the form of extreme uncertainty, like what is going on here? Uh, 
Two is cognitive dissonance, which is a particular form of confusion when things outside our expectations of the possible are actually occurring. And sometimes we can't even experience them. There's just like a disconnect in our brain. And then third is uh, wonder, sometimes alongside skepticism at the same time. It is quite a, a compelling and invigorating mix in these appearance stories. But there's one other feature to these accounts that I really like, um, and that's the Jesus who appears uh, retains his very distinct, very human, very compelling and charming personality. If, if there's like a mood shift in Jesus in, in his uh, resurrection appearances, it's that he's more relaxed and more playful. You know, consider John chapter 21. Our, a little small portion of this was from our reading from uh, Lydia this morning. I want to look at John 21, 1 through 12. And of course, why wouldn't I? Use the new Sarah Rudin translation, the first solo translation by a woman and one that runs circles around previous efforts uh, because Sarah Rudin is arguably way more qualified to translate the common Greek of the Gospels than the vast majority of other translators who are not schooled as she is in the popular Greek writings of that period. And because of her expertise in the language of this uh, period, I mean, she like translated many other works before she tackled this, Rudin is especially well attuned to the emotion nuances that make all the difference in stories and in human interactions. So I'll read our John 21 portion and comment as we go along. I think maybe Caroline's gonna help and put some of these portion by portion in the screen and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read and comment uh, and try to pull out the feelings and the personality that uh, at least I see or feel as I, as I read this account. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to his students at the Sea of Tiberias. It's Israel's uh, biggest inland lake, about 13 miles long. It's a lake, actually. Sometimes it's called the Sea, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. Um, and it's surrounded by hills. And then in a little more distantly, the Golan Heights that you've probably heard of. Uh, Israel took over the Golan, he Golan Heights from Syria in the 67 war and and this is how he revealed himself there together were simon peter and thomas who was called the twin and nathaniel from cana in galilea and the sons of zebedee and two other of jesus students so we just know these were seven very high feeling characters um, in in the gospels uh, peter uh, famously wore his emotions on his sleeve and at this point, he's not yet over his self-loathing for denying Jesus uh, three times on the eve of crucifixion. That would have been like some weeks ago. Thomas called the twin, which must have been annoying to be referred to as the twin. Uh, like, okay, like, who, who am I? Like, I'm, a, I'm the twin, okay. Uh, maybe that's like a individualistic American interpretation of that, but... Um, Thomas, along with Judas, wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared. So he was in kind of a don't ask me to believe this crap mood. Um, Nathaniel is the guy at the beginning of John's gospel during the transition from John the Baptist to Jesus, who uh, was hearing about Jesus from Nazareth and scoffed, 
can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus overhears this and teases him about it when they first meet. And then the sons of Zebedee uh, are also known as the sons of thunder because they were like hotheads. Uh, and then there's two unnamed others, one of whom is probably the beloved disciple. Maybe that's John, uh, who's at least probably a source for this, uh, for this gospel. The gospel is probably not actually written by the literal uh, disciple John, but uh, someone in touch with the stories that he had about Jesus. So it goes on, and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going off to fish. So it's at least several days after the crucifixion and the first appearances of Jesus in this new mode of existence that he's in. A group of them have left Jerusalem where all the action was happening and they go back north, they go back home to Galilee where most of the disciples were from originally. Peter's betrayal is the elephant in the room. Uh, it's his failure as a leader of this group and he's gone back to his fishing business, the one he left to follow Jesus. So despite a few resurrection appearances of Jesus, he seems, Peter has seemed to lost his bearings. He's lost his confidence. He's lost his sense of purpose. I'm going off to fish. Feels like he needs some alone time. They told him, we're coming with you. Like maybe they didn't want him alone in a boat in his frame of mind. Uh, then they went and boarded the boat, but during that night, they caught nothing. Um, I, I took a trip with Julia. My um, wife Julia is an Episcopal priest, and she had this trip to the Holy Land, and I was like the tag-along husband. It was awesome. And I, there was like, there's a boat big enough to hold about 7 to 12 men that was found in the lake bed of the Sea of Tiberias uh, not that long ago, and it was carbon dated to roughly this period when these things happened. So I saw the boat restored in a kibbutz in Galilee. And man, I was staring at that thing for a while. That was like, a, that was pretty awesome. Uh, it was on display. So it's a boat like this, kind of a common fishing boat of the time, small business fishermen. The mood of the scene is what? It's, it's aimlessness, it's lethargy. Uh, I discovered this word recently. I thought originally it was NUI. And then I asked Julia, how do you pronounce that word NUI, E-N-N-U-I? She says, oh, that's ennui. It's a French word. I'm like, oh, okay. It's like uh, post-war French existentialist movies in black and white where they smoke a lot and everyone seems aimlessly occupied on the left bank, you know, lack of energy, ennui, that's the, that's the mood. But soon after dawn arose, Jesus stood on the shore. So this is a sudden mood shift in the story. Uh, these are resurrection word plays. The word translated resurrection is literally arose as in stood up from the dead. But soon after G dawn arose, Jesus stood on the shore. The students, however, didn't recognize that it was Jesus. So this is a recurring thing uh, in the early post-Easter appearances of Jesus. At least three times, people who knew him well don't recognize him when he appears. Maybe because their grief-addled brains don't expect to see him, or maybe just because Jesus appeared wearing the common sun gear 
of the day, which would have been like a big hood covering the head and the upper part of the face, like the Ray-Ban hoodie. And so maybe he just wasn't that, um, that visible to them, especially at a distance. And now the Sarah Rudin translation shines bright among all translations. So Jesus said to them, you didn't have anything to nibble, youngsters. Rudin says, uh, this is one of two very particular Greek words that refer to something like a relish, a cooked dish, a side dish, not a main course, and one that often features fish. I, I think of like the modern day gefilte fish, um, served as an appetizer in Jewish cuisine, I think around the Passover too. Um, Rudin says this word could be translated little eatables, like uh, lunchables, are those still a thing? Lunchables in an, you know, the box, I know the box juices are still a thing, I'm not that out of touch, but like a little something. Compare Rudin's translation, you didn't have anything to nibble, youngsters, lads, to the flat new international version, didn't you catch any fish? In, in Rudin's translation, he's rubbing it in. Uh, not even enough for a little gefilte fish on the side, which makes their response, I think, more annoyed. They replied to him, no. One might infer a hand gesture accompanying this, <laughs> this response. He recognizes them, they don't recognize him. Then he said to them, throw in the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find something. They threw it in accordingly and discovered they no longer had strength to, dra <laughs> to drag it back. There were so many fish in it. So re remember, um, these, are, these are like men, you know, like in, in men mode, um, although it's Middle Eastern, it's ancient, it's not the same as like American, you know, toxic masculinity, but it's, 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 it's men, it's guys hanging out together. And Jesus was a builder, not a fisherman by trade. But once before, and at least three out of these seven are professional fisher, fishermen who know this lake and, you know, like the back of their hands. Um, but there's one time before, I think it's in Luke's gospel, chapter five, when Peter first meets Jesus, he was out fishing with his partners, the sons of Zebedee. So the same three fisher characters are in this John 21 episode. And Jesus pulls the same trick. Bad luck all night. Try it over there. Same jackpot results. So he has this uncanny ability to pick good spots for people who know better than he does how to fish. And this uh, episode, this kind of repeat, uh, triggers the recognition. Hence the student Jesus loved, is maybe like one of the source, source figures of this, of John's gospel, said to Peter, it's the rabbi. Simon Peter hearing this, tied his outer garment around his waist as he had stripped. My, my daughter, Oceana, would call this TMI. <laughs> and, uh, but the other students come in the small boat as they weren't far from land, only about 300 feet, dropping the net full of fish. Then as they climbed out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire laid, like set out, and a cooked relish lying on that, and a loaf. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the relish you've caught just now. Simon Peter, ever obtuse to the nuance, ever the literalist, missing the point, 
this is kind of humorous that Jesus is calling, you know, this big haul of fish a little relish, climbed into the boat and dragged the net onto the dry land. The net was full of large fish, 153 of them, but even though there were so many, the net didn't, uh, didn't tear. Jesus told them, maybe while Peter is still counting the fish, he says to the rest of them, come and have breakfast. He's already prepared the breakfast. What's going on? Well, this is the kind of subtle, playful interactions between friends when they're reunited. And there's some kind of strain between them. And Jesus is kind of breaking the ice by bringing back some of the old, like, inside jokes and dynamics of their previous relationship when they were hanging out together. In particular, Jesus seems to feel this is the time to work things out with Peter, uh, to face that painful to them both betrayal of Peter's on the eve of crucifixion. When Jesus is interrogated by the temple authorities, while Peter warms his hand, hello, around a charcoal fire. And a woman recognizes his Galilean accent and says, aren't you with this guy? And Peter says, who me? No way, never knew the man. That happens three times and the cock crows. So the playfulness, the breakfast around the charcoal fire, it's signaling to Peter, we're gonna work this out today. And after breakfast, in fact, they take a walk and they work it out. It's kind of another, another scene. So let's leave it there for now. I mentioned these um, earlier, these dozen or so stories that involve Jesus appearing after his death to his disciples, offer a kind of, at least for me, they offer like a feeling guide for discerning our own experiences of God, at least those experiences that are mediated by Rabbi Jesus. So they help us to notice certain things in, in these experiences that we might have. It might be happening while we're singing a song or reading a text or praying or, or any, these things can just sneak up on us sometimes. Um, you know, it's like, oh, if you experience something like this and it has this quality to it, well, maybe this is like a divine connection through like the Jesus uh, portal into God. Um, some, lots of people, um, more than you'd think over time, develop a sense of place they go to where divine connection sometimes seems to happen. It, it, uh, it could be out in nature, like an actual place out in nature, or it could be like in the mind's eye, like in the realm of imagination, more like an interior place. Might be a favorite uh, deer stand out in the woods. It could be a fishing spot, or it could be like a certain ritualized activity, like knitting or playing the guitar or listening to certain music, where over time, um, people have a sense of connecting with God. You'd be surprised how many people have this and it can be kind of um, a very distinct kind of place that they imagine or actually are in. Or when they stop to consider, they say, oh yeah, that actually does happen to me. So um, my, my place took shape about 17 years ago and it's more of an interior heart place. Um, everyone have, has different ways of like getting to these places and mine is a little quirky. I have a certain chair I sit in, it's right over there. I almost always light a candle and then I do uh, the divine hours. It's a form of fixed hour prayer. You know, it takes about three to five minutes. 
Um, and I do that, doing that kind of like, it's almost like a bedtime routine that it kind of gets you into a more ritualized mode and you kind of slow down a little bit. Um, and, and it helps focus my mind and slow my brain chatter. I, I use sometimes a repetitive prayer, like a mantra type thing called the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And as the brain chatter slows um, and kind of just fades into the background, I feel a little bit like my center of awareness is shifting from like ordinary brain mode uh, to more connected beyond my mere self mind mode, if that makes sense. I sometimes feel like my center of awareness is almost like floating down into my, uh, more like the center of my body instead of like rattling around in ordinary thinking head brain mode. And that's where I, I sometimes have a sense. It can be vivid or less vivid, um, can be wispy, doesn't matter, but it's always a sense of like sitting around a campfire and Jesus is there like waiting for me. Sometimes um, we just sit there like an old married couple, <laughs> don't need to say anything. Sometimes I mention loved ones, sometimes feelings emerge and I process stuff there. So uh, it's like Jesus as my therapist, only he doesn't charge, you know, no insurance forms to fill out. Um, recently, it was some, um, the feeling that I kind of took with me or became aware of, it was like a burr of fear that was stuck in me and it was popping out in a recurring uh, night terror, maybe once a month. Um, so it was like this, I knew it was connected to something back there. This, this time on the way into the campfire space, I was aware of that and I, and I knew I wanted to process it there. So a memory pops up. It's kind of a vivid memory of me talking to a former religious colleague from back in the day about my changing views on something. This guy years ago says, well, where are you landing, Ken, on this? It sounds like you've landed, and if you have, you've landed outside the circle. Um, you know, where are you, where are you landing, Ken? You know, in man talk, that's like a power move when someone who knows you uses your name like that. Th this was definitely a power move conversation. And certainly if you have, you've landed outside the circle was a, was a power move, especially given the fact that we were in a ship in the ocean. <laughs> being outside of the circle would be like being in, the, being in the ocean. And then I realized in my like, you know, thing happening space there, oh, wow, I haven't fully processed this. This conversation represents a fear I haven't quite released. It's like a burr stuck on my leg, so to speak. And then I have, I have a sense of what that's all about. The details are not so relevant. And, and I'm, I'm having a sense of something coming into focus, some clarity. And then in that campfire place, it's not words exactly. It's more like perceiving by mental telepathy a message from Jesus in the form of a question. And what circle would that be? It was just that feel. And, and what circle would that be? And then I realized, oh, right, um, I'm sitting here with Jesus around a campfire. This is a circle that matters to me. This is like my secure base camp place, and, I, and I'm here, and it's awesome. And I'm, I'm out of that other circle. It's just a religious organization bounded by fear, 
and and I'm quite fine now that I've kind of passed through it. It was like the the thing was bounded by this like wallpaper of fear on the inside of it. It's like, oh, don't go there, don't go there, you know. But when you go through it, you're through the. It's just paper, and then well, it's it's behind you, you know. But but that fear can kind of be residually stuck to you, and and I just wow, I'm really fine. Uh, uh, and then the fear just kind of evaporates, and I feel like, ooh, that felt like a kind of a interior healing kind of thing. I like that. Thank you. I needed that. All to say, what matters to me about the resurrection isn't all the ways that institutions have rallied around the resurrection as a dogma, which turns it into just another bone of contention. What matters to me is the feelings that surround these appearings of Jesus to the people who want to be friends with him, and hey, I want to be friends with him. And these feelings evoked by these stories are a kind of authenticity guide for me regarding my sense of connection in moments of possible divine connection that occur at various ways and various times. So it's like feelings first, faith follows, like David Borger German says. Okay, we'll do a little reflection time now. Um, so if you are free to participate in this, you're not driving or whatever. Um, having spent a little time, you know, with this story, let's let's use that as a, to, to fuel our imagination. Imagine a scene like this from our maybe from our own experience. Um, so if you like, if you're free to uh, start by relaxing into the chair that you're sitting on or whatever you find yourself on, feel the weight of your body pressing down. Maybe take one or two deep breaths in through the nose, into the belly, out through the mouth. And if you haven't already, you might close your eyes and imagine a favorite lake or body of water. Um, maybe something from your own experience. And just take a little time to notice the surroundings in your memory. You know, the, the sun, the clouds, the sounds, the waves, if there's waves there. What time of day is it? Is sunrise, sunset, somewhere? And now maybe imagine um, somewhere on the shore there's a campfire going and a little extra warmth seems appealing. So you find yourself sitting on a log or in a lawn chair around the campfire just take a look into the fire. It's just the way you like it. And fill in some of the details. Again, the sounds, the smells, the feel of it, just sitting there. And if you'd like some company, just imagine a few friends or loved ones with you. Anyone past or present, just people that you would want to be there. They just, they just appear. They're, they're, they're there with you around the campfire, especially people that you can just feel comfortable not saying anything to, just where long periods of silence are just fine. So it's quiet and no one is feeling the need to talk. Everyone's content just to enjoy the fire. And now we'll just take a full minute of remaining silence now. And if you like, you can imagine God as a divine friend 
sitting next to you. You can just enjoy their company, or if there's something that comes to mind, you can mention it. Go ahead. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and we'll have our candles.